As we come now to the scripture, um, let me ask you please to pray with me. Gracious Father, um, we marvel at your kindness to us. These great and powerful words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. What an amazing thought for us. And we know that if you poured out your love to us even then while we were still sinners, how much more now that you have saved us and we come asking that you would teach us and give us strength. So please help us now as we come to the scripture. May your word give grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ephesians, please, in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I just want to read beginning with verse 30 and then chapter 5 and verse 2. Ephesians chapter 4, please, in verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed... For the day of redemption, that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander to be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now remember, we're in a section in this letter, chapter 4, that Paul is laying out for us how we are now to live as those who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the consequences of sin, from the guilt of sin, from his power as those now who once were created in the image of God, that image broken because of sin, now this restoration of the image of God, that as he says in chapter 4, verse 24, that now we're created, as believers in Jesus, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So he's laying out for us how we're, in, how we're now to live and so it's important for us to recognize a couple of things just as we get to go. Uh, one thing is that these things about which he speaks, these particular sins still plague us. These sins still plague us, you see. Um, if they didn't, he wouldn't have to tell us to stop doing them. And so they, they, they're habits of life uh, from our former life, but they remain with us. And so he's now renewing our minds, helping us to understand and also in the midst of that, give grace to strengthen us, uh, to help us so that we can put these things, put these things away. We mustn't think that these are necessarily easy. Uh, I read from you from Colossians 3 earlier, and there's an expression there that Paul uh, uses in talking about dealing with sin. And he says, put them to death. Now, that that kind of always chills me when I read that because I said this is how important this is, this is how difficult this may be, even 
as those who are believers in Jesus. You know, if you're being honest with yourself, I know uh, various sins, uh, some that seem to beset us, some that seem to be with us, that we seem to be dealing with more often than others. And, and we know the difficulty of breaking away, of putting them to death or putting them off is the language here. Or as uh, one version says, saying good riddance to them or, or, or get rid of them. You know, that kind of thing. So we know that. So this isn't a waltz. Uh, this isn't uh, something that's necessarily evil. That's why Paul says in the early part of Ephesians chapter 4 that we're to make every effort. I mean, this is going to require uh, something of us. We're going to know the striving and the struggle perhaps in, in some of this. Now, a question is this, does this sound arrogant to us when, when Paul says, for instance, in, in chapter 4, verse 17, to lead us into all of this, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You know, is, is, you know, you could say, well, we're not supposed to be like those people. We're just supposed to be like Christians. And is that arrogant? And the answer, of course, is no, it isn't. Uh, what Paul's saying, in essence, is don't live the way you used to. But also, this, this whole letter is, is filled with calls to humility. I mean, you can't read the opening chapters of Ephesians and be arrogant. Because what Paul is saying to us in those opening chapters that lead into this, as we know, is that you are who you are in Christ because of God, not because of you. It begins with these lofty Words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us unto adoption as sons, you see. So this is, this is God's work. Then in chapter two, as you remember, he, he lays out our former manner of life. He said that we were dead in trespasses and sins, that we were enslaved really, to the world and to our own sinful desires and to even the devil himself. And you say, well, how, who's going to break that? And only God can break that. And that's why, I mean, this expression, uh, but God being rich in mercy uh, because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, this comes from God. It's his work. That's why we say it's grace. It's a gift to us. It comes from God's heart, who he is. Come and save us, you see. And so it isn't uh, arrogant on that part. This is God's work of creating us in the likeness of God. And, and, and let me just remind you by way of introduction. The prayer, the prayer that Paul prays to introduce this whole section. Verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, For this reason I bow before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now remember, when we talked about that some months ago, this idea of Christ dwelling in us is this permanent dwelling. That's his point. Christ dwells in every believer. But his prayer is that Christ would dwell in us permanently in such a way as to make his home in us. That is, to remodel our hearts to be so that we would be a place wherein he enjoys dwelling, a place 
that reflects him. The same way that if you buy a house or rent an apartment, you begin to redecorate or refurnish in certain ways that reflects you. And so it's a place where you like to be. And so that's the point here, that he's remodeling our hearts. So that's, that's what Paul prays so that then we can respond. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, that we may be filled up in such a way that our lives will be so filled with the very presence of God that our lives would reflect him. Right? So that's his prayer. Now he's saying, all right, look at what Christ has done. Look at what Christ is doing, even in your inner being, as he prays. Now, he says, get on with it. So he's calling us to action. He's calling us to do something. He's calling us to be who the Lord has made us and is making us to be. Say, now, now do this, right? Do this based on all that Christ has done. It's a call to action. Not without prayer. He's already prayed. And now he says, this is how uh, you are uh, to live. And remember, what he's doing is he's saying we need to take some things off sin and we need to put some things on characteristics of Christ. And then he gives us the reason why. And all of this reflects a great transformation that is ours because of the work of Christ. First, we put away falsehood, verse 25. So we put that off. We put on truth, you see. Put on truth. Why? Because we're members of one body. We can be angry yet without sin. And so we're not to let the sun go down on our anger so that the devil has no opportunity. And amazingly, he says, those who are thieves, those who take from what doesn't belong to them, can be transformed into those who actually work to have so they can take what does belong to them and actually give it to someone else. Such a transformation. And then he also says that we can be transformed in such a way that we no longer corrupt with our corrupting talk, we no longer corrupt others and no longer corrupt our communities with our talk. But now we can actually give grace and be a great benefit to those who hear us so that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So now we come to verse 31. And he says, we're to put off some things and put on some things. And he says, we're to, 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 to let all bitter, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. And then put on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiving. That's who we're to be. The reason is because God has forgiven us in Christ and we're to be imitators of God. So let's walk through that. He says, first we need to take off this um, bitterness. So so what is that? Well, we follow that little word bitterness just, just very um, gently, if you will, or easily through the Old Testament. We, we find that uh, bitterness can be used uh, to describe the difficult hardships or circumstances that we, we fall into. You might remember in the story that's titled Ruth in the scripture about this woman named Ruth who was the daughter-in-law of another woman named Naomi. You might remember Naomi and her husband uh, were Israelites. They started out living in Bethlehem. A famine came to Bethlehem, so um, Naomi and her husband and two sons went into the land of Moab to get food, to live there. 
While they were in Moab, uh, the sons married. One of the sons married a woman named Ruth. Uh, the other son, a woman named Orpah. I'm glad that Ruth becomes the heroine or we'd have a bunch of little children running around the church named Orpah. Uh, but Ruth is, uh, seems to be easier for us. But, but Ruth, you see, uh, and Orpah married these sons of Naomi. And in Naomi's life, her husband died. And her sons died. And there she was left with herself and her daughters-in-law. Orpah decided to stay in Moab. Ruth, as you know, decided to go back with Naomi. And so when Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, the women of the community uh, see Naomi and they hadn't seen her for a long time. So in Ruth chapter one and verse um, 19 at the end of this, the women say, is this Naomi? And Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Uh, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so this word bitter describes the circumstances, the situation, the loss, really, of what Naomi has experienced. And then we get into the life of Job and just mentioning the life of Job, you you sort of know where we're headed here. One who has suffered in particular ways that um, astound us to see uh, what he went through in the course uh, of his life. And in Job chapter three and verse 20, after he's lost his his kids and after he's lost his fortune and after he's lost his health, um, this is said um, why is light given to him who is in misery, or in bitterness, if you will, and life to the bitter in soul? So now you see uh, the, the claim is that, that these difficult circumstances can affect our souls. And not only does life seem bitter or sour to us, but we become bitter within. And here's the description. Who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to man who is hidden away, whom God is hedged in? For my sighting comes instead of my bread, my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. You see this one who's experienced this, this deep trouble and becomes not only becomes bitter by way of circumstances of life. And so Paul says that we're to put that off. We're not to become bitter and we're not to become sour in our own hearts. Uh, one commentator puts bitterness like this. He describes it. It's an old 18th century Scotsman. You don't need to know him. Um, it's bitterness is a figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a person in perpetual animosity, that inclined him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things, make him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor. It brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom into the words of his tongue. That's the extreme of it. We often disguise it, at times better than that, uh, we know that having that sour disposition may not be acceptable to people. And so we, 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 can, we can disguise it. But because of the circumstances of life, what happens, uh, we can become 
we can become bitter. Um, another White Lloyd-Jones um, creature in the last century from England, you, I suppose, are familiar me quoting, especially in this uh, letter of Ephesians. By the way, Lloyd-Jones has about six volumes like this uh, on Ephesians. So this just covers from the middle of chapter four to the middle of chapter five. Uh, you think I take a long time. He writes this. He says, bitterness then describes the kind of life which has become sour. It is not ready to believe good of anybody or anything, but always ready to believe evil. It's always somewhat cynical, takes the glory out of everything, tries to spoil everything. When it's shown something beautiful, it doesn't praise the 99% of what is beautiful, but always points to the 1% of defect. We all know the kind of individual who has who is always pointing out the troubles and the defects and the faults and the blemishes. There are many such people. Then he goes on to say this. He says, there are, of course, many people who feel they have good cause for being bitter. There were many people in two world wars. Uh, he's preaching this in the late 1950s. In the two world wars, wars who lost a husband or an only son. It's very easy to understand how they have become bitter with regard to the whole of life. But it doesn't excuse it, it's wrong. They should never allow themselves to become bitter. They've dealt, they've been dealt certain hard blows by life. But there's no justification for bitterness or sourness or becoming cynical. Even if life is described to them at its best, their very expression lets you know that they're not really disposed to allow themselves to enjoy anything. The saddest people I know in this world are those who are bitter people. They make themselves miserable, and for, a time, and for the time being, they make everybody else miserable. It's a terrible thing to be nursing a grievance, real or imaginary. Put it away, says the apostle. Put it away. That's the old man. It should never appear in the Christian. But we know this. We know how easy it is to allow circumstances of life to sour us. I began a list uh, really about 25 years ago, and I continue to add to it. What are the kinds of things that cause bitterness? That we, we think of debilitating uh, illness, you see, uh, can cause people to see their circumstances, the difficult cir- circumstances, the hardship, and cause them to become bitter. Abuse, we know. Whether it's emotional or sexual and various kinds of relationships can cause people to be soured upon life and upon relationships upon trusting. We know various losses that people experience, if it's long-term losses, whether it's in employment, and you can see how unemployment or underemployment can affect a person over time, and they can become bitter and cynical about life. A loss of wealth, loss of abilities, whether it's by disease or other disability, even by age, we can see it in Even age, we can become bitter about life itself in dealing with the whole process of aging. We lose loved ones, as Naomi did, and and the bitter circumstance, the bitter experience. And even in Job's life, as he lost his his family, we can see how that can cause one to become bitter uh, in life. And just simply the cruelty of life. We can see it in the context of church life. It happens where people feel, whether it's true or not, people feel hurt by 
by their church. They uh, didn't feel like they measured up, if you will, if that's the kind of situation that they might have been in. Sadly, they didn't feel like they measured up. They, they, they were perhaps misunderstood. Um, I've been with pastors, ministers, who have been ministering, it appears at least to me, faithfully through the course of their life, come to the end of their work life and become bitter because of reflections on how they have been treated over the course of their ministry life. Too many um, uh, behind-the-back conversations um, and just this critical eye, perhaps, that can happen to pastors' kids as well as uh, they view church. And so you can see the bitterness, and I've experienced in the lives of others such bitterness. Um, life in comparison to your friends. You know, your friends seem to be advancing in various kinds of ways, whether it's financially or socially or in terms of family life, and, and, and you're not. Um, they're married with children. You, you're not. They have been promoted in their work, and you haven't been. They have. And they, by comparison, then, you can see the bitterness in the course of their lives. Some have been soured because of and on marriage because of how they've seen marriages. Some kids have been soured on marriage as we chat with college students who come to us and uh, tell us about the course of their lives and, and, uh, and, and the direction they see themselves <clears throat> headed. And we talk about marriage. You can sometimes see the, the bitterness, the sourness of, uh, towards marriage because of experiences as they've seen their parents interact or not. And as they've They've experienced family life and they, you can just feel, see the sourness, the bitterness in their lives. You can see it as you might talk to a husband or a wife and the sourness that has come uh, towards marriage because of an unfaithful spouse or because of, of a, a marriage that was unsatisfying. And so we can see bitterness set in. We can see bitterness set in on those people who have lived from a history of, of prejudice and discrimination and how... Um, They've been discriminated against simply because perhaps of their nationality or the color of their their skin bitterness can can grow. We could make lists you can you know in your own life what easily can sour you, make you cynical, see the worst in every situation, lose hope if you will. Um so Paul goes on and he says, you know, if you foster this bitterness, then there's a great danger that other things come into play with this. If you deal with bitterness, then these other things are less likely to be a problem. But he says when bitterness happens and you become sour upon life and upon others, then you can find yourself being filled with rage, really, wrath. And it may be under the surface and it may not manifest itself all the time. But there are times when you just get and all of a sudden it comes out and people look and go, why did that happen? This, this, why did that happen? The circumstance doesn't seem like it would have caused that. But then you see something come out in a person. And we see it in the context I smile, but it isn't smileable, I suppose. But road rage and other kinds of things, somebody just sort of cuts you off in traffic and then all of a sudden it's a huge deal and you wonder, what's really behind all that? You see. Rather than anger and clamor, you begin to shout and, and, and make all kinds of noise about this and slander that, that you begin to, to, to say evil things about others, things that, that exaggerate perhaps what is really there and, and, and take what, 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 what might not even be noticeable and call it evil in the lives of others. 
and with malice because then you want everybody to hurt as badly as you do. You see, this, Paul knows, destroys unity. And he's saying that as believers in Jesus, we need to live together in in unity. And so bitterness just tears away at unity as as a group of people united in love together. And it doesn't reflect the holiness of God. So here's what he says to do. Here's what he says to do. You must put all of that away and put on something else. Do you remember this story? took place, incident, historical, took place in the life of Moses and the Israelites. They were leaving Egypt after, um, uh, after their time of slavery. God delivered them. So they, they're leaving Egypt and, and they've been wandering around. They've been moving together as a group for a number of days, three days, and they haven't had anything to drink. And so they're very thirsty and they come upon this, this area that has water and they test it and the water is bitter and they can't drink it. Uh, and so God instructs Moses to go to a tree, take a log and throw it in. And when he throws it in, the water becomes sweet. And so it's drinkable. And, and so I think about, so, so, so what log do we need to throw into our lives that, that will deal with this bitterness, that will take away the bitterness and sweeten, if you will, our hearts. And so Paul lays this out and he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. He says, so, so take this off and here's what you, you're to be. You're to be, to, 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 to be kind to each other. It's the opposite of bitterness, you see. Bitterness sees all that is wrong and doesn't really do, want to do anything to be helpful at all in that situation. But kindness has as, at its root, its very base, being helpful, bringing a benefit being kind, you see, to another, serving another. That's what kindness is. But there's, there's something else that's always attached to kindness. It isn't just doing something nice for someone else. It isn't just bringing a benefit. It isn't just serving them. It isn't just seeing the need and saying, I'm going to go help in that situation. It's all that. But it's also doing it with great joy. See, the kind person is the person who comes and helps you in such a way that when they're finished helping you, they look at you and say, thanks so much. This was great. I had such a great time. I couldn't imagine doing anything else than this today. And you finally, you say to them, well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you go, well, wait a minute, Thanks. You just forget all about that. But why? Because there's so, there's so much joy in the serving. It's, it's kind, you see. It's kind. There's no bitterness there. All they can see is the good that they brought. And they're so excited about having done that. You see, that's real kindness. And then tender-heartedness. Again, the opposite of bitterness. Bitterness is a, is a calloused, hardened heart. The tender heart is a, is a soft heart. That's why I read from Ezekiel earlier that uh, God promises to take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Hard to tender, you see. And to put his spirit in us and enable us to walk according to his statutes, to walk, you see, uh, in his ways. This, This... Tender-heartedness. It's, it's a compassionate heart. It's a merciful heart. heart. It, sees, it's, it sees the need and, and desires to come and, and help and to be kind 
in that situation. I mean, I don't know if this illustration is going to help you or not. It helped me a couple of weeks ago. So I'm out mowing the lawn. And, uh, and as I'm mowing, I look out and I see this man, probably about my age or a little bit older, who's kind of jogging down the street. And that, that's being kind. It's really a very halted kind of a gait. He looks pretty awkward. And in addition to that, he's wearing running shorts that are really, like from the 1950s. I mean, really, really skimpy. And no shirt. I'm thinking, his wife obviously didn't see him before he left the house. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, come on, man. Buy a treadmill. Uh, You know. And then I get this thought. What if I learned that six months ago he had a stroke and the doctor told him he would never walk again and that he overheats really easily. But, but in order to keep this, this, this to grow in strength, he needs to get out and he needs to jog like this. If I knew that, then I would be out on my sidewalk cheering him on. And so I thought, so why didn't I think of that first? Being tender-hearted, you see. Looking for that which is good in the circumstance and situation. And I can tell that story which is self-deprecating because I know you do the same thing. You think the same first thoughts, right? But that's just the way we are. And I don't want to be that way. I want to say, okay, God, how can I look at this situation? How can I look at it? And how can I think? Why can't I think of a context where, where this is really good? As opposed to a context that this is really kind of embarrassing for the whole community. And so, yes. And then he says, forgiving one another. Again, the opposite of bitterness. Bitterness saying, why should you be happy when I'm not happy? Bitterness, why should anything be good when I don't have anything good? Forgiving someone simply means, uh, I, I want the best for you, even though you've hurt me. Thomas Watson from the 18th century um, or 17th century puts it, Like this, he says, when do we forgive others? He says, we forgive others when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish them well, when we grieve at their calamities, when we pray for them, when we seek reconciliation, and when we show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them or to help them. So we know we've really forgiven when we desire the best, when we're willing to help those who have hurt us, you see. That's the opposite of bitterness. That forgiveness is complicated, I get it. But this sense of desiring the best for those who have hurt us. So how do we get there? Well, he says, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, there's, there's, that, there's always that little as, through to love as he's loved us. We're to forgive as he's forgiven us. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, did I deserve that? What did I do to deserve the forgiveness of God through our Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is nothing at all. I mean, when we go to God and we say things when we're having difficulty uh, being kind to someone or tenderhearted or forgiving them, and we say, but, but you don't know what they've done. Or, but, but, but if they don't change, 
or, or you don't know how this has hurt me. The Lord goes, yes, I do. And I've been kind to you. And I've been tenderhearted to you and compassionate. And I've forgiven you. So what's your next question? You know the story that Jesus told, and it, it really grips at the heart in Matthew chapter 18. He tells a parable about a man who owed another man the equivalent of billions of dollars that he could never repay. And so the man who was owed that amount came to the man who owed him, and he took him by the neck, and he said, you know, you need to pay me. And the guy said, well, you know, Give me till Monday, essentially, which is hilarious because he could never come up with the money. But he says, I'll pay you. I'll pay you. And, and the man who was owed so much realized that payment would never be made. And he forgave him the debt. And then we know what was next. The man who was forgiven so much went to someone who owed him comparatively tens of thousands, not very much compared to the billions that he had owed. And he did the same. He took him by the neck. He said, pay me. And the man says, I will pay you. Give me some more time. And the man said, no. And he threw him into debtor's prison until he could pay the debt. And, and, and Jesus, you know, I just get a sense that Jesus probably paused and looked at everybody for a second. Like, are you processing with me? And, 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 and the realization that, yes, they were. And they were incensed at the situation as well. They should be. And Jesus just said, well... That's what will happen to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Because God has forgiven you like that. Never, never, we must never, never, never forget the grace we have been given. Someone asked me recently how it is that I could pastor in the same church for all these years, 29 years or so, and, and, and all of that. And I said, it's because I've been given tremendous grace by the congregation that I serve. I've been given tremendous grace. I've been given grace in areas that I, didn't, I don't even know about, that I don't even think I deserve. I don't even think I need grace for that, but, 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 I, I, you know, <laughs> but I've gotten it, you see. That's the only way you make it. And then you make it by never forgetting the grace that you've been given. That's how we live, you see, in community together. We give grace. We receive grace. But we give grace because we never forget the grace that we've received. First from God. And then from each other. And so then Paul comes to the summary of it. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. He says, says, I'm creating you in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So be imitators of him uh, as, as his beloved children. You belong to him. Now, as his beloved children, you reflect him. There is a song, and I always hate to quote lyrics to a song because people like songs or don't like songs, and some are schmaltzy and some aren't and anything. And this one was written in the late 70s. So uh, who knows? But, uh, but there was a song that was written and sung called My Father's Eyes. Anybody remember that one? Some of you are too young for that. That's good. Thanks, you, Jesse. Uh, we remember this. Uh, and and, and it, it talks about uh, what it really means to be a child of God, to reflect him, you see. I mean, you know this. Every time a baby's born, people stand around like this two-week-old, beautiful, well-shaped head child, 
And they say, look at that. It looks just like his mom. It looks like his dad or his brother or his sister or whatever. We're always trying to think about who this kid looks like at that point in time. And, and we're to, we are as the children of God to reflect him. And so this song goes like this. It says, we're to have his, our father's eyes, the eyes of God, if you will, to reflect. Eyes that see the good in things when good is not around. Eyes that find the source of help when help just can't be found. Eyes full of compassion, seeing every pain knowing what you're going through and feeling it the same, just like my father's eyes. Those are the people we need in our lives. Those are, those are the people we need to be for, for each other, you see. And that strengthens community. That doesn't mean we don't discipline. That doesn't mean we don't correct. But when we do, it's, it's from a position of what have received grace. It's from one who isn't dealing with the bitterness and the bitter experiences of their own lives. It's really sour on life. It's those who have put that aside. And it's those who have put on, you see, kindness. Who want to be involved in such a way in others' lives that blesses them. And nothing can make them happier than doing that. To be kind, to be tender-hearted, and to forgive. He says, and walk in love, reflecting our Father, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see, this is the exact opposite of grieving the Holy Spirit that he said in verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were sealed for the day of redemption. The opposite of, of, of grieving him is being a fragrant offering to him. We grieve him when we aren't loving, when we forget the grace we've been given, and we... Please him when we love, you see. Now, do you want to see that? Do you want to see that? On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And do you see the kindness of God? It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning a chain. And do you see the tender-heartedness of God, his mercy and his compassion. Do you see the forgiveness that comes? And do you see his love and grace? He says, oh yes, I see it. Do you receive it? Do you believe? And he died for you, that you could be freed from your sins. He died for you. That you could be his child. Do you know his loving grace?
You say, yes. This is good. Now I'm creating you in my likeness. Be kind. Be merciful. Tender-hearted. Forgive. As you've been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this table and we're grateful that you are here present with us, Lord Jesus. And so we pray now that you would enable us, give us eyes to see all that you, Lord Jesus, have done for us. And that you would cause us to be grateful. And please work in us in a way that assures us that we'll never forget the grace that we have received so that we then may be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. That we may love as we've been loved. Forgive as we've been forgiven. So take this bread and juice, please, and use it in such a way in our lives right now that, again, we know that we're in your presence. Lord Jesus, minister to us, help us. Assure us. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace.